Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Kay, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge of the Class of 2005. Here on the Providence College Podcast, we bring you interesting stories from the Fryer family. This week, we're talking with Joan Barker, an alum from the Class of 2004 who majored in history and French at PC. A chance meeting with a recruiter at a job fair her senior year set the course of her life abroad, first as a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger, and later as a Defense Department consultant for language and cross-cultural training. She has worked in the United Arab Emirates and Afghanistan, including two years as a defense contractor teaching English to the Afghan Air Force. After the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan in August, Barker has become an advocate for vulnerable Afghans left behind, helping them evacuate and sending aid, as well as writing op-eds, calling for U.S. government accountability in this matter. Joan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here today. So let's just start at the beginning of your international career. What, what led you to join the Peace Corps originally? So um, as you mentioned in the intro, there was a career fair in Slave in my senior year at PC. I mean, I'd heard of the Peace Corps, but I'd never met anybody that had done it. And so um, I was at this career fair and there were all these booths for different sort of like financial institutions or career fair booths I thought were aimed at like the school of business at PC. And then there's this lone guy in the corner from the Peace Corps. And I was like, that's the guy I want to talk to. So I went over to him and, and, you know, just asking him about the application process and how you get selected and how they assign you and things like that. And we just started corresponding and I, he convinced me to fill out an application and that was that. Um, so yeah, that was uh, at the end of my senior year. And then exactly a year later in the summer of 2005, I was on a plane to West Africa to go start my two years in Niger. And what did you know about Niger before you got on that plane? I am ashamed to admit that I did not know much about Niger. In fact, I had never really heard of it. I heard of it pronounced Niger in the British pronunciation, but I had to pull out a map and a globe and look and see where it was. And when I was going through the application process, um, there still wasn't much out on the internet. It wasn't like you ever, you could go Google everything or go read about people's experiences in the Peace Corps. So I really had no idea what to expect going into it, what the service would be like, what what anything was going to be like. You still had to write hard copy letters to former volunteers that the Peace Corps could put you in touch with and ask them, like every the small things from what do I pack in my suitcase to what is life like there? So um, I was pretty blind going into the whole thing, but was open to that experience and really had this hunger and thirst to learn about other cultures and go overseas and and see the world. And, and uh, I'd grown up in Connecticut next door from PC and just kind of wanted to get out. And um, yeah, so that was the start of it. And um, then after my service, that was that was the launching pad into the my decision to go into language and culture training. So. And what kind of work did you do in Niger? So I was assigned to a rural post as a health volunteer, which in different countries that the Peace Corps uh, has volunteers and that can mean many different things. So, so being a health volunteer in different countries might entail different things. And where I was, because it was so rural, there were no health clinics and there were no hospitals. So it's not like I was serving in a, in a structure, an edifice of any sort. It was more like doing education so partnering with local NGOs and Nigerian aid workers and helping fund uh, campaigns where they could come out into the rural areas and talk to people about things like family planning and maternal and childhood health, uh, because that was one of the biggest challenges Niger was facing and still faces is high mortality rates and infant mortality rates. So um, just addressing some of those health concerns. So that was what we were working on. 
But at the same time, the village I lived in was on the border of Nigeria. And so many of the men that lived in the village where I lived, they were farmers. And about six months out of the year, they would farm. And then six months out of the year, they, they couldn't farm because it was off season for farming, the weather and, and everything like that. So they would go down across the border into Nigeria to work in the local markets there and like hawk, you know, fake jewelry at people or try to sell them knockoff sneakers and things like that. So the point is, this all comes back to how I started teaching English. So these men, these like older men and some of the younger men, before they went to Nigeria, they would pull me aside and say, hey, can you teach me some English? So when I go to the market, like I can try to sell things using English. Because in, in Niger, where I lived in that village, the local language was called Hausa, H-A-U-S-A. So I learned to speak Hausa and I speak Hausa every, every day with them. Um, but when they went to Nigeria, they had to speak English in the markets. So informally, like while I'm doing this other work as a health volunteer, informally, I'd be sitting with them like drinking tea in the afternoons and we'd have these English lessons. And I just loved it. It was so much fun because in return, they'd be teaching me more things about their language. And it was like this great exchange. So I actually walked away from that. Most people that I served with in Niger, the American Peace Corps volunteers went on to be, get their master's and PhDs in public health. I was like, I'm going to go get my degree in teaching English. Because so, I just, that's, that's what I fell in love with there. <laughs> So where did that experience take you next? So when I came back to the U.S., um, I went back home to Connecticut and went to Central Connecticut State University and got my master's degree in linguistics with a focus in teaching English to speakers of other languages, knowing that I wanted to take that at some point and go back overseas and teach English again. Um, not so much in a rural village, but I ended up, there's a lot of opportunity out there just for folks listening. If they're on that career path or are curious, there are a lot of opportunities to work, for example, in universities overseas, doing English prep for, you know, for example, for people that want to come study in the U.S. or lots of English for specific purposes, like English for business or things like that. Um, I just ended up by chance when I, when I got my degree in 2010, I was on a job board and there was an advertisement to go work on a military base in the United Arab Emirates. <laughs> and I was like, well, that looks interesting. And I really like hands-on teaching. And, um, and I liked working with this male population when I was in the Peace Corps. So I don't, I would love to go work with these soldiers. It was specifically um, these male soldiers in the UAE. And uh, yeah, so I took that job. <laughs> it was an American company that I was working for and they were partnered with the US Embassy. So the U.S. Embassy in the United Arab Emirates was uh, contracting with the Emirati military, their military to ask the U.S. for some English training. So um, the company that I worked for was, was contracted to do so, and there was a team of about 10 of us. So we lived in Dubai, and we commuted every day to this military base and worked with these soldiers for about six hours a day, five days a week, and that was really, really cool. Um, and then so some of the folks that I had worked with there went on to work in Afghanistan on some of the military bases there. So it's this kind of small network at that point of people that actually have this experience working with partner forces of the United States um, and, and know about these job opportunities. So one of my friends one day when I was looking for a job, this was in 2017, he's like, you should come over to Afghanistan. And he was somebody that I had worked with in the UAE. So. And what was that experience like when you when you transferred to Afghanistan and you started working for the Afghan with the Afghan Air Force? I mean, especially since, as you mentioned, you know, these were very male populations. And I'm imagining that in the UAE and Afghanistan, this is not a situation where, you know, women and men typically are working together as equals. 
Right. So this was the interesting thing. Um, so my background, having served in the Peace Corps, that village in West Africa was Muslim. That country of Niger is something like 98 to 99 percent Muslim. So I had that was a crash course in uh, working in that kind of environment as a female. And I think other females in my position can echo the sentiment that as an American woman, often working in those spaces, you are treated as sort of this like, like third gender, right? Because they don't treat you necessarily like, they're not expecting me to act like a Muslim woman in the local community would be acting. They know that I'm from a different country. And so you're not, you're certainly not always treated like men are. I've, I have male American colleagues who sometimes they would, we'd be standing together and working with counterparts in other countries and they'd kind of ignore me and talk to the guy I was standing with, not necessarily as a, as a mode of disrespect, but sometimes it was, a, a, they were trying to be respectful, not addressing you directly, not making eye contact with you because that's inappropriate for them to do. So I like to be clear that I don't, I, I you know, I sometimes I felt like people would condescend to me in certain situations, but most of the time, especially with like male counterparts that I knew, um, made me feel very respected and actually would take care to make sure I knew that they were taking care of me in, situ in various situations where, um, you know, there's a lot of security risks at play. My life was in their hands and I always felt comfortable and respected. Um, but, but that's a valid question because that is, it's, it is hard sometimes to like, for example, one anecdote I can give you is I did work with a woman in the UAE who worked in that schoolhouse with those Emirati soldiers that we taught. And she was, an American, but she was Muslim and she was treated differently than I was. Um, comments were made, for example, about what she wore and how she should be covering, you know, like her hair. So it was, it was um, that was very interesting. That's one anecdote. I don't want that to, to make people think like that's what everybody is treated like, but that's to your point. Um, there are different expectations in those countries. And certainly in every and any Muslim country I've worked in, I've had to be very cognizant of my dress and my appearance and my interaction with the people I work with, specifically the men. So, but I do think to your question, my experience having worked in Niger and then worked in the UAE, I think was very good preparation for going to that military base in Afghanistan um, because I, I knew what to expect. Uh, it's already a little unnerving thinking about yourself getting on a military C-17 to fly into an Air Force base in a combat zone. Uh, there's a lot that you're trying to think about, but I didn't have to worry about that because I already knew about that. Like working with people from different religions or different cultures, I felt like that was already like, hey, the, the way was already paved for that. I just got to focus on those broader security concerns. Uh, so that was, that was good preparation. And did you stay in touch with folks when in Afghanistan after you left that position? I did. So... This was 2018 when I left. Uh, obviously everybody, most of the folks there have Facebook at this point. They might not have laptops and computers, but everybody's using their cell phones. So um, on that military base where I worked, I worked with two sets of people um, in the offices for the defense contractors and the US military on that base. Much of the staff was what we call local nationals. So they were Afghans people running you know, HR spreadsheets or just doing admin, admin tasks um, or serving as HR for the other local staff we were hiring. So we worked with a lot of Afghans and those folks fell under the job title of interpreter translator because they would be interpreting and translating documents for us. Um, 
serving as interpreters at high level meetings on the military base with the Afghan military leadership. So they served a lot of different roles, but they qualified for what you may have heard in the media as the SIV or special immigration visas. So I worked with those folks like in the office and then I'd go out and teach in the classrooms, which were usually these little trailers like dotted around the military base next to different aircraft hangars and things like that, where we'd be working with the soldiers of the Air Force and the special mission wing. So when I left, I knew hundreds of Afghans. So, you know, I mean, we're all in touch on Facebook and WhatsApp and Signal and Twitter and all these different social media platforms. So um, when this all, I don't know if that's where your question is leading, but when this all kicked off in August, when Kabul was falling, myself along with hundreds of thousands of other defense contractors and military servicemen and women who had been in Afghanistan, everybody on August 15th went through this collective experience of the phone just started like binging and buzzing and notification after notification after notification coming in on all of the Facebook, WhatsApp and the Instagram, like any way that they could get in touch with us, like, please save me, help me, uh, you know? And it was a very traumatizing experience for them and for us. And it was, it was, it was scary and, and very intense, but um, yeah. So that, that connection to us from when we left Afghanistan, you know, maybe every four or five months we'd be checking in with each other prior to any of this happening, just kind of like, how are you doing? How are things there? And they would check in on me, Miss Joan, how is your family? Or, you know, Merry Christmas if it was Christmas, but we didn't really like talk much. And then this has been a very intense situation for all of us where we were talking to them every day, all day for a month straight. <laughs> what do you think that people should understand about the situation in Afghanistan as the U.S. left that people might not know and about the plight of the, particularly the folks, your colleagues that um, were left behind, those who had worked with the U.S. military? Well, thank you for asking that question, because that's why I started writing and reaching out to media outlets and writing op-eds as a call to action for our senators, representatives, um, the White House. I was writing op-eds basically saying to everybody involved, while we were still evacuating, you can't leave these people behind. We made a commitment and we need to honor it. And then when the evacuation was over, I continued to write to call for accountability in the congressional hearings on the Afghanistan withdrawal. And what I tried to make clear in these, in any article I've written, I've always tried to feature the story of either one of these special immigration visa interpreters that got left behind or the soldiers that we worked with, because these are real humans that I know. And I think that in the mix of all of it, um, it becomes a news item that gets lost in the shuffle and people are able, I don't want to say dehumanize, but they're not, if they're not connected to it, it's easy for, you know, when the news cycle moves on, for people to move on with it. And I've tried to keep a human face on this because I want people to remember like what these people are going through and what they went through. And, um, you know, I think there's so much that I could say and that I want to say. Um, I don't know if you have any follow-up questions that I don't, cause I don't want to just go off on a tangent. I've, I've been very steeped in all of this and impassioned about it, but. Well, I think in one of the pieces you wrote, you definitely highlighted the fact that um, there was a process for folks to immigrate to the United States. There was, there was th these visas were in process and that um, there were problems with that process. Yeah. So it's tough cause I'm trying not to, I don't want to just, 
go on a rant and sound like I'm critical of the government. I feel like these people did what any American asks any legal immigrant to do. They got in a line, a long line. These special immigrant visas take years to process. They are multi-step visas that are vetted by the State Department, Department of Homeland Security, and various um, programs and initiatives within those departments. It is a like clear 14-step process. And a lot of the guys I worked with were like at step 13 or at step 14, they were at the finish line. So this was double heartbreak for them to, to have to go through this, this waiting process. And then, for example, one of the fellows I wrote about in my the article, Breaking Hearts and Minds, his final interview with the U.S. Embassy in Kabul was scheduled for September. September, he would have gone and gotten his visa. And they, he was to the point where he was asking me and my friends in the U.S., where should I live? They're asking me where I want to go. Virginia or Texas, you know, like he was that close that he's planning his life in the United States. And then the day that Kabul fell, he's like, what do I do? Are they, am I, do I still have my interview? And I had to tell him there's no interview. They're done. Like they're, they're leaving. And so that was really hard. I think when you ask, what do you want people to know? I want the American people to know that there is a huge group of us, like thousands of people out there that were doing this work communicating with these SIV interpreters and trying to get them information in real time that they couldn't get from our own U.S. government. And I don't say that just to be critical of our government. To me, it comes back to an issue of national security, right? And I wrote about that in several of my articles. These people did everything we asked them to do, and they stood by us. They didn't just work for us. They served a mission that was specifically in place to combat terrorism, not just to nation build in Afghanistan, but to secure it so that terrorists didn't have a place from which to plan and operate terrorist attacks against the United States. And these people risked their lives to do that every time they showed up for work in the morning. Anybody that saw them in a car or a taxi, some of them would like wear disguises to work. They'd bring different clothes home so they weren't seen walking in the same clothes. We weren't allowed to give our students homework because they couldn't bring papers that had English like on it, you know, like, so it was that airport that everybody witnessed in August, that airport was the military base where I worked. It's a civilian airport on one side and on the other side. So like picture it like a big, like oval football field cut in half down the middle. One side is civilian airport. The other side is military base. And on that military base, which was technically a NATO military base, there were, um, French, British, Australian troops on that side, mostly American military and the Afghan military. And we were all living and working together. And so, and then we had all these support staff, the local nationals that would commute every day to that base. They risked their lives to go through those gates every day. And then in August, when the US military went in to secure that airport to get the US embassy personnel out, now these people can't get back into that place that they risk their lives to get into every day. So like the irony wasn't lost on us that we owe them and we know what they're going through. We know that they're sitting outside that airport looking at those concrete T-walls with the barbed wire on top saying, I risked my life to go in there every day for these Americans and now they're not letting me in. And that was, that was the heartbreaking thing for me. The other thing that people need to know and that I've been saying from the beginning is that there was this interagency failure between the State Department and the Department of Defense that really is the crux of why I took pen to paper and started writing. We were getting notifications from these Afghans that said, I have an email that I got from the State Department two days after Kabul fell. They were getting emails that said, because you're an SIV applicant, you qualify to get out of Kabul. Please come to the airport for an evacuation flight. They've got this from the U.S. Embassy Kabul, even though the, the embassy had 
they had fled the embassy, the, the Americans, they, their staff was still sending out emails to these special immigrant visa interpreters. And they're taking those emails and showing up at the airport, like risking life and limb and taking their families and their small children through Taliban checkpoints. There were there was dispersive gunfire and there was mayhem and chaos and they made it up to the gates. And then the U.S. military was saying to them, we're not allowed to let you in. To no fault of the military, they had orders not to allow anybody in those gates that did not have a U.S. passport. So it was very confusing and very stressful and traumatic for these folks that were like, one, your government is telling me to come here, but then I come and they're telling me I can't get in. And they're texting us for answers and we don't have them. So what do we do? Me, I say we, me and my team of ex-English teachers that had worked there, veterans that I knew, defense contractors that I knew, we were all in these like makeshift Facebook groups of like a thousand people trying to get answers to these Afghans. Do you go to the airport? Should we send you to a border? How can we help you? You know, we want to save you, but we don't know our government. We don't have answers. Our government's getting on TV and saying everything's fine. If they just make it past Taliban checkpoint, they'll get on a plane. And we've got information to the contrary. So it was a very confusing time. And so I, I bring that up. You know, I don't know what you're going to keep in or edit out, but I think it's the American people didn't have access to that information. And so a lot of us that did decide to write or go to the media or do media interviews did that because we thought they're not hearing the truth. And again, why is that important? It's not just that there might be dishonesty, but that is something that isn't just going to disappear because the news cycle moves on. These Afghans feel abandoned and thrown to the wolves. And so when they look at the American flag or they think about doing business with the Americans again, like that, that is where I think it's a bigger issue of our credibility in front of the world. And do we honor commitments to our allies when we say we will? Are we going to make tough decisions when it's diplomatically uncomfortable, but necessary? And how is this going to come back to haunt us if we don't do right by other people in the world? That's what, that's what keeps me up at night. Not only that these people are in danger and they're still there and trapped, but this is going to have long-term repercussions for us. So it's um, not just the short-term, the immediate like neat danger that these folks that you know yeah. are in, but it's also the long-term impact on our reputation around the world. And another thing that's happening now too, another consequence of this is that they're so desperate. These people obviously aren't working. They have no jobs. There is no functioning government. The military has disintegrated. So they're selling everything they own. There's no money for people to give them money because the banks are out of money. So they're bartering things. They're, they're trading off their wife's wedding jewelry, cars, furniture. Um, and when they get really desperate now, when ISIS and the Taliban are coming around saying like, we've got money or even worse, we can't pay you, but if you don't cooperate with us, we'll hurt you. You know, especially a lot of ex-military. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news, but the Taliban did stage a military parade about a week ago, and they had all these MRAPs going, the, the tanks going down the street, and they had helicopters. The people flying those helicopters were the Afghan military pilots that have been coerced into now collaborating with the Taliban. And that's that's not something that we want to see happen. I mean, that's devastating for all of us that, that train those pilots. <laughs> And, and worked with their military to see them now telling us like, yeah, they went to so-and-so's house and they said, you need to come work for us now. I'm like, well, are they paying them or feeding them? And I don't know, but they're basically like, you have to do this. So that's another repercussion <laughs> is, is a tough pill to swallow. Joan, if people are listening and have been seeing those news accounts, like what are things that people could do to help at this point? So, um, well, in, in an acute way, what people can do is there are uh, there are a lot of organizations that are trying to get aid into Afghanistan. 
since a lot of Afghans cannot get out. So for example, the World Food Program, I know they've been asking to, they've been trying to raise awareness and, and um, basically prevent this mass starvation this fall. Afghanistan is facing its worst potential famine in decades. So they've been asking for support and donations. Um, I know the UNHCR is also bringing aid in. Um, I've, in my personal networks, have been collecting money for a food aid program that we um, have been able to help operate from afar that is successful in Kabul, getting food aid packages to people. So there's there's things like that, immediate need, addressing immediate needs for um, addressing hunger and cold. But on a broader level, we still need to be pressuring the government to do the right thing. So not everybody that needs to get out is going to get out with US government assistance. But I think a lot of us now are turning our attention to, to say, okay, so what can be done? Um, one other, big glaring elephant in the room that like nobody is addressing is that these folks that are trapped there are in a landlocked country surrounded by con border countries who are not allowing them to cross the border. I know Pakistan has a, a has in place a policy right now if you have a visa you can cross into Pakistan. Getting that visa is going to be challenging for anybody that has to go to an office now run by the Taliban and present themselves to ask for a visa to get out. Some of those people are being rolled up and taken away if they find out that they work for the security services or they were a police officer with the Afghan um, civilian services and things like that. So, but you know, other countries, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, all the other countries that surround Afghanistan, what are we doing as a nation to make sure those countries are honoring their commitments when they said they would be taking in refugees in, in August? This is a human rights issue. Humans all have the right to seek asylum and flee persecution and flee humanitarian crises, flee starvation. And it's, you don't often find people that are in a situation where they're not allowed to leave the country. They're trapped in there under a terrorist regime. This is not a legitimate government who is going to treat them well. Um, yeah, again, like they don't, they can't seek jobs. There's no way to make money. They're, they're facing starvation and cold and potential retribution and they have nowhere to go. So to your question, to come back around, because I can be pretty passionate and go go off. <laughs> but to your point, um, I think that people, if if they can get in touch and write to their senators and congressmen and women to continue to ask the administration to work with those border countries, to work with the UNHCR, and to make sure that people have a way to escape this situation, this unmitigated nightmare into which they've been plunged. Um, so that's what I would say on a broader scale. Um, in terms of that longer term yeah. like, solution. Yeah, I mean, that's all that we really can do. Um, there are still some efforts to get these special immigration visa uh, interpreters out. I know that the US is working with Qatar. I think it was the Wall Street Journal, or I could be wrong in the outlet, but somebody was reporting that Qatar did agree to bring some of these SIVs in and host them. And I think Qatar has agreed to be our envoy on the ground in Kabul, since we're obviously not going to send an ambassador there, but they might act as a conduit to help some of these interpreters who did uh, receive their visas and qualify to come to the US. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we continue to work and use our diplomatic levers to, to make those kinds of things happen. And then of course, there is the element of everybody that did make it out and is in the United States. And Americans have been shown overwhelming support for these, refugees that are resettling. So folks could um, eat, just Google your local refugee resettlement office. So for example, if it's in and around PC, 
Google, you know, Providence resettled refugees or Boston refugee resettlement. There are organizations in every city and municipalities that are assigned to intake refugees. And those are usually like Catholic charities or the IRC or Lutheran services. Those are the federally contracted resettlement agencies that will be processing these refugees and assigning caseworkers to them. So those organizations also do a lot of the good work like clothing, uh, drives, food donations, offering English classes and job skills classes to these refugees. And a lot of times that's dependent on volunteer work. I actually didn't mention this at all earlier, but that was how I got my start, really started my teaching career officially was working with resettled refugees in downtown Hartford, Connecticut, while it was pursuing that master's degree that I mentioned. So I was working with Somali refugees at the time in 2007 and 2008, and 2009. And um, so I can, I can guarantee you that those organizations rely heavily on volunteers and you can do a lot of good work just even sitting with people and listening to them and making them feel welcome and not alone. Cause it is scary to come to a new country and you don't know the language or how things work. And especially in the Northeast, like it's cold. <laughs> so, you know, bringing somebody a pair of gloves and like having a cup of coffee with them, like I can promise you like does wonder. So if people want to support those agencies and help those refugees here and really feel like they're making a tangible impact, I would also encourage people to do that because it is incredibly rewarding and it is incredibly necessary work. But as you said, it's only half the battle, right, folks? Right. Getting folks out of Afghanistan is the first half, but then once they're in whatever new country where they land, um, getting settled and established there is another huge um, hurdle to overcome. Yeah. Joan, could you tell us about any experiences like writing for the cow when you were a student that helped you, help prepare you for this advocacy work you're doing right now? Yeah, so I actually, my stint at the Cowl was... I was a, the features editor, so we did we published like poetry and um, comics and things like that. And then I worked for a while as the managing editor, which was more like a coordination role where I was helping the different sections, like the news and sports sections, and everybody like collaborate and coordinate and um, make sure our marketing was was on point. That's when everything was shifting from print to online too. So that was an interesting time. But um, I think that was one of my first times working on a team that dynamically. So I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't on the news beat going out and reporting stories, but I, I liked the aspect of working with a team and um, helping, helping uh, the newspaper succeed. So that was really a cool leadership role and a, a cool teamwork role that those skills I definitely brought into a lot of things that I did later in life. Um, and just being familiar with the newsroom and how it works uh, when I was entering this space back in August, you know, thinking like, I I want the American people to know what's going on in Afghanistan. I want to give a voice to the voiceless. I want people to hear what my friends in Afghanistan are saying that's getting drawn out in the news. Um, it was intimidating, but I think having had that background of working in a newsroom, I had I had the courage to just reach out to opinion editors and um, opinion columnists at different newspapers. I mean, for all the stuff you saw printed, I mean, I emailed out to every newspaper outlet in the country and there's a lot of people that, you know, never got back to me. It was such a busy news cycle. So, but I wasn't, I didn't, it didn't deter me. I just was like, somebody's going to read this and maybe somebody will print it. And I always ended up finding somebody that would, but it's a very intimidating process. And I don't know that I would have had the, the guts to do that um, had I not had a background working in a newsroom like the Cowl. Um, and also just being familiar with those journalists who I said to you, 
I forget if this was before or after we started recording, but a lot of the folks that I worked with at the Cowell have gone on to have these incredible careers and they've done great things. And so being able to reach out to them and say, hey, do you have contacts? Do you have somebody that I could email this, this op-ed to? I'm really just trying to save these Afghans and help these people. And they were able to really be a good resource for me and a motivator, you know. So, yeah, it all came full circle. <laughs> so, I mean, just thinking broadly about your overall career and trajectory at this point, if you look back at your time at PC, are there any other experiences, classes, or specific professors that you feel shaped you know, your your career aspirations today? Oh, my goodness. Um, so many. I had some really, really, really great professors at PC. And I think that one of the lasting legacies of like all those classes from, you know, Civ to the history classes I was taking, um, I just feel like I was always being pushed to think critically. And I mean, we read so much and I'm one of these people that likes to, to analyze a lot of information and like see the big picture. So, um, God, I can't like single out a single professor, but uh, I, I did have, um, I did have a really good time there learning in that way. Um, it's it's hard because I got out of PC and it's like, what do you do with like a history degree or a French degree? I didn't have like this hard skill, but to me, it, like being a critical thinker has has helped me whenever I go into any of these foreign situations, I'm able to see a lot, a lot of stuff in a little bit of time and make sense of a lot of things at once. And that's what, that's what I think <clears throat> my point is liberal arts. Like a lot of people have a lot of things to say about a liberal, liberal arts degree and where it can get you. Um, it's the long game for sure. <laughs> I didn't exit PC and like walk into a six figure job. Peace Corps doesn't be like that. But, but, you know, um, I do, I do appreciate that, that PC value that, because when I, when I got out of high school, I, 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 I just wanted to learn. I didn't necessarily have like a career path laid out for me, but um, things fell into place and, and I'm grateful for that. So this year, PC is also celebrating 50 years of women, the 50th anniversary of women enrolling as undergraduates. So this year, the college is celebrating the achievements of women faculty, students and alumni. How do you think your gender affected your experience at PC, if it did? You know, did you have, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, when you had mentioned this question earlier, I was thinking, like, I don't remember it being a hindrance or anything at all. In fact, I had some really, the, my female professors were awesome. Um, again, I feel so bad because it's been, I have a horrible memory with names. I can see their faces, though. And I had um, just some really fantastic uh, female professors in Civ, and then one of my favorite history professors. So I love the female staff that I worked with and, and studied with at PC. Um, I mean, there were some funny, you know, things looking back at like my college experience versus people that didn't go to a religious institution for college. Like I remember it was at McVinney and uh, <laughs> you know how you had to sign people. If a boy came to study with you, you had to sign them in and things like that. And I tell that to other people and they're like, that's wild. <laughs> Some funny things. I don't know if that, if it's still like that, but <laughs> you know, it's just things that you're like, okay, right? Exactly. So, um, you know, things that other people are like, that really blows their mind or that we even had um, gender segregated dorms. I mean, there were co-ed dorms, but there still were if you chose um, gender segregated dorms. So it's interesting things like that. But I, again, I never felt like for me at the time, I guess 2001 to 2004, um, I don't know that gender really, 
there was definitely not a negative effect. I'll say that for sure. Um, yeah. So we are recording our conversation before Thanksgiving, and I feel like it must be very difficult in the season of doubt, gratitude to stay optimistic when you think about the colleagues that were left behind. How, how are you staying positive or, or how are you maintaining hope during these days? I'm glad you asked that question. It is, it has been very, very trying. Um, the team that I'm working with, the other Americans, the veterans, the other contractors, we've, we've created this support network for each other and continuing to be in communication with them, even if we don't all have good news to share with each other, has really been a rock. Um, and I think over the holidays, some of us have already talked about getting together with each other, uh, especially since it's, it's hard to be around other family and friends right now that aren't going through this. And a lot of us echo that sentiment, like people just don't understand. And so it's important to be with the people that do understand <clears throat> and not to neglect family and friends. Um, I certainly, you know, share with them when I can, but I know when it's, you know, they, this isn't what most people are dealing with. So you kind of have to filter on it, but we're there for each other. And um, I think we will continue to be there for each other. Um, as far as, you know, being there for our Afghan friends and colleagues, it's, you know, we do check in on them. It's, it's painful. Um, I think October was, was when a lot of us kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of these folks just aren't getting out. And again, we're having to be the ones to tell that to them. You know, they're texting us. They're not texting, you know, the president or the people that are, were giving press conferences in August and who were making those, those big decisions. We're, we're the low hanging fruit here. We, they have access to us and they're texting us for answers. And so that's why I titled that original op-ed Breaking Hearts and Minds because my friend Darren, who I taught with um, in Afghanistan, I just remember us having this conversation in August and we're both in tears. And I was like, you know, they're not going, these Afghans are not going to hear an apology from our government and they're not going to hear the truth. We're going to have to be the ones to tell them that they're not leaving. And we're going to have to be the ones to break their hearts. And like, we're, you know, so that was like this phrase in my mind. That's like, that's what we continue to have to do. So, um, but I mean, we're still going to push forward and support them in any way that we can. And we're going to make sure that this, we keep a human face on this and that we continue to try to engage um, our representative, <laughs> our elected representatives and our government and, and try to, you know, continue to call for accountability and um, continue to rely on each other. So thank you for asking that question because it does mean a lot. Well, Joan, we will definitely include some of the links to some of your, your op-eds with our, with our podcast when we share it so that if people want to follow up and learn more about the experiences and, and the work that you've been doing. It's been really wonderful thank you, chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. I hope I was able to offer some insight. I really look forward to, to seeing what you guys put out. Thank you so much. Subscribe to the Providence College podcast in all the usual places, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as your smart speaker. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening and go Friars. <laughs>